you spend the money? If you ran a foundation that gave out $440 million a year, what big bets would you make in order to create a better world? Our guest tackles those questions each day as he embraces a philosophy of bold change. He says he rejects the idea that incremental steps are the way to go. If we want to solve these types of problems in a fundamental way, we have to aim higher. We have to be bold and we have to make big bets that are grounded in new innovations that, uh, that might be risky and experimental, that are grounded in unlikely partnerships like the Republican Democratic ones we just talked about. Dr. Rajiv Shah is the president of the Rockefeller Foundation, which works with its grantees and partners to reverse climate change and advance human opportunity. It's a mission made even harder given current challenges, and we'll ask him all about it. I just respectfully would suggest we don't think experts have all the solutions at all. In fact, I firmly believe and have learned in the depths of Port-au-Prince after the earthquake in Haiti and Eastern Congo in the aftermath of conflict and war on the streets of Mogadishu after uh, we were able to clear terrorism from that community for a while, that the best solutions actually come from local communities you're serving. And this is Conversations on Healthcare. Welcome, Dr. Shaw, to Conversations on Healthcare. Uh, thank you for having me, Mark and Margaret. It's great to be with you. You know, first, congratulations on the release of a new, the new book, Big Bets, How Large-Scale Change Really Happens. But before we get into the details of your approach, let's start with the crisis in the Middle East. There are urgent efforts underway to prevent humanitarian disasters in Gaza. You've also said Israel is justified in responding to the Hamas uh, terrorist attacks. You've talked about the need to balance defense, diplomacy, and development. How is this balancing act looking to you right now? Well, you know, I served on the National Security Council in a number of different settings and through a number of different crises. And one thing I learned is when you have a situation like this, uh, where there are uh, extraordinary emotions on all sides, it is important to look to the long term of how to protect national security. And in this case, the long-term national security interest of, of Israel and by extension of the United States involves taking into account all of defense, diplomacy, and development, including humanitarian affairs. And so I applaud efforts that are clearly underway by the United States to help, and I suspect these are more private than public, uh, to help Israel see the opportunity it has to create an opportunity for humanitarian service in Gaza and in the region to potentially uh, secure some type of humanitarian corridor to enable people who would otherwise be under siege to especially women and children to have safe passage and to conduct the, the war, which, as I've said, is absolutely justified in the context of a horrific and condemned terrorist attack against Israel by Hamas to conduct that campaign against Hamas in a manner that looks to create long-term security by continuing to protect those who are otherwise vulnerable and who are innocent uh, of wrongdoing. And that's uh, hard to keep in mind. You know, the, the press and the media and the political attention is often very focused only on rockets and guns and, and tanks. But the reality is all three elements of national security need to be prioritized in this moment if we're to avoid a larger catastrophe throughout the Middle East. Well, Dr. Shah, you've led the U.S. Agency for International Development, known as USAID, 
during the Obama administration. You, you saw it through some tough budget challenges. Uh, today, President Biden is now asking for $105 billion for Israel, uh, Ukraine, and national security efforts, including humanitarian support. And this is going to be tough. Your book touches on how you navigated such congressional fights in the past. From your perspective, how does the president win this fight? Well, I think you win this fight uh, in two ways. The first is uh, what I think is I'd call the standard approach, which is, you know, having a, a thoughtful and comprehensive package that doesn't require uh, going back to Congress over and over and over again, like say what you need, say it once, be clear about the strategic intent and explain, as President Biden did from the Oval Office, why he believes it's in America's absolute national security interest to execute this package. Uh, the second, though, is something I suspect President Biden understands as well as anyone, which is make it personal. I, I've learned uh, in my time in Washington, especially on uh, items that are partisan and heated. Uh, and I write about this in my book, an episode where I said a few things in a congressional testimony that really upset uh, the then Speaker of the House, John Boehner, and, and many uh, conservative Republicans. But I went on a listening tour and I learned about the values and the perspectives and the upbringings of uh, faith-based Christian uh, conservative Republicans in the Senate and the House, and ultimately built a set of authentic relationships based on vulnerability and dialogue and getting to know each other in a deeper way that I think uh, really made a big difference in reestablishing America as the world's humanitarian leader. And I think that same approach uh, is, is worth pursuing now, even though, by the way, it's easy to watch television and say, oh, you must be kidding me that no one is that serious about service here. This is all posturing. It's, it's not. It might be for a few, but for the majority of people who will cast a ballot and cast a vote, um, there's a, a deep commitment to some type of public service involved here and an opportunity, as President Biden well knows, uh, to get to know folks, even who, even if they're on the other side. Well, that's such an excellent point. Uh, let's, let's turn to the focus of your book, and, and that's the need for big bets in philanthropy. Uh, and first of all, the book was very thought-provoking, uh, and congratulations on, on uh, releasing it. I just uh, uh, I got released last month. But I'm wondering if you could explain for our audience your approach and why you think it works well, you know, it's uh, it's grounded in a basic idea that too often when we look at tackling big social challenges in the United States or around the world, we settle for very incremental or very piecemeal efforts because we think that's the best we can do. And frankly, we sometimes think doing a little bit of good is good enough. And the truth is, if we really want to solve some of the challenges we face, the widespread prevalence of chronic disease in the United States that made Americans sitting ducks to COVID mortality, or the reality that still tens of millions of children every year are not getting simple vaccines that could save their lives. If we want to solve these types of problems in a fundamental way, we have to aim higher. We have to be bold and we have to make big bets that are grounded in new innovations that uh, that might be risky and experimental that are grounded in unlikely partnerships like the Republican Democratic ones we just talked about and that ultimately are focused on measuring results and staying persistent through through many decades. And I've had a chance to learn from others that this approach can really work. And so that's what we're trying to take and implement here at the Rockefeller Foundation today. 
Well, I want to stay on uh, the subject of your book for uh, another minute, because it really was fascinating. Uh, but we saw the Chronicle of Philanthropy article about the book, uh, and it said, and I'm quoting here, even as Mackenzie Scott and the Ford Foundation popularize unrestricted giving, the Rockefeller Foundation maintains an experts know best approach to grant making. But you have a chapter in your book called Give Up Control. So tell us how you hold and balance those to what might seem like a, a dichotomy in positions, but tell us your approach to this. Well, it's not a dichotomy because we don't actually believe experts know best. I, I have a chapter on the Ebola crisis where I talk about how we fought Ebola in West Africa. And when the world and the CDC expected 1.6 million cases, we ended up with 30,000. When we expected cases throughout the United States, we ended up with only two and neither were caught or, or and there was no contagion inside our borders. The reason for that was we listened deeply to local communities and we listened to local community groups. They crafted some innovative new solutions that changed what was possible at fighting Ebola. The same is true in our efforts to expand access to energy to a billion people that still live in the dark. Uh, it is true that we worked with a set of innovators and technologists and scientists for more than a decade to create these rural mini grid structures that are solar panels and batteries and artificial intelligence based remote energy and battery management systems tied to smartphone payment. I mean, it's a pretty cool technological innovation. But at the end of the day, the only reason we can scale it up is because I don't know, 20, 25 partners came together, mobilized almost $12 billion, activated collaborations in 22 countries. And in every one of those countries, these are community-based efforts. We just announced the building of solar metro grids in uh, Eastern Congo, a place ravaged by war, where I've had a chance to sit with kids that have just been through unspeakable horrors, both boys and girls and simply there's no electricity there, therefore there's no jobs and no real economy. Uh, we're now building this out with local partners in the lead so that those kids have a brighter future. So I, I just respectfully would suggest we don't think experts have all the solutions at all. In fact, I firmly believe and have learned in the depths of Port-au-Prince after the earthquake in Haiti and Eastern Congo in the aftermath of conflict and war on the streets of Mogadishu after uh, we were able to clear terrorism from that community for a while, that the best solutions actually come from local communities you're serving. Yeah, we couldn't, we couldn't uh, agree with you more as a community organization. I was really drawn to the chapter on pivot, uh, in, in part because we all had to do this hard pivot uh, uh, in 2020. Our organization had seen 100,000 people the year before, but that next year, 800,000 people crossed our threshold. So we had a lot to think about. And you really write about this, which I found really compelling. You called it a hard pivot. And the Rockefeller Foundation started the Pandemic Prevention Initiative. Tell us about the goal and how's it working? Well, the, the hard pivot that I talk about in the book was uh, was really in the first quarter of 2020 when COVID uh, became clear COVID was going to be a problem in the United States. You know, if you think about it, and I was with uh, uh, Dr. Tedros uh, in Europe just about a few days before they had their big meeting that documented uh, COVID as an international concern pandemic. Uh, you know, if you think about it, it, at that moment in time, the U.S. was considered absolutely the best prepared to do, handle a global pandemic anywhere in the world. And when you look retrospectively, we had the most excess mortality 
of any country on earth. I think with 4% of the world's population, we had 16% of the world's deaths. And the reason for that was our public health infrastructure was not up to the task. And the biggest reason in the first quarter of 2020 was we had no testing. Uh, we could look retrospectively as to why, but the bottom line is we had no testing. So the, so the Rockefeller team said, hey, you know, we're supporting health efforts all around the world, but we are going to pivot our work to focus on building out a testing infrastructure in the United States that is at the scale necessary. And we proposed what we called the 1330 plan uh, to get from 1 million tests a week to 30 million tests a week. We succeeded in that effort by investing in very unique public-private collaborations, uh, including with the states of Connecticut and Rhode Island and all across the country to scale up antigen testing, and it made a huge difference. And, and the reason the chapter is so important to me in the book is often when you're doing social service work, uh, it is hard actually to pivot. It's hard to change what you do. It's hard to adjust your strategies and you get criticized for making changes. And I wanted to honor the teams that uh, on the ground in Navajo Nation in Los Angeles, all across our country that actually pivoted on, on a dime's notice and, and made a big difference in the trajectory of this disease in the United States. Well, Dr. Shah, I think we still have a lot to learn from COVID and hopefully we'll be more focused on learning and less focused on uh, criticizing anybody's uh, efforts along the way. I, I couldn't agree with you more. But, but we learn as a, as a world community as well, uh, as a country. And I know you had the experience of being one of six global leaders appointed by the UN uh, to review the world's capacity to prepare for and respond to global pandemic threats. This is back in, in 2015, uh, I think. When you look back, based on that learning, um, how how were that group's uh, sort of uh, plans and recommendations aligned with how we would look today at what we need to do differently as a world community in the face of pandemic? Well, you know, that panel was the UN high-level panel on pandemic prevention. And what's interesting is it was one of maybe three or four panels after the Ebola pandemic that made a set of recommendations. There have since been other efforts after COVID. They always say the same thing. Uh, the first and foremost thing is having the capacity to scale up diagnostics, testing, and to have surveillance and shared data in a platform that allows the world to see the disease, where it is, learn about it fast, and prevent it from spreading. That's always step number one. That's always, by the way, the cheapest part of the plan. And mm -hmm. it's the part that despite multiple pandemics, our public sector governments have simply not delivered a solution on. Um, and we can talk about that's why we created the Pandemic Prevention Institute and then ultimately turned it into a program that we run here at the Rockefeller Foundation. The second element is actually having the tools and technologies ready, stockpiles, manufacturing capacity, different types of contracting structures so you can quickly scale up having the vaccines and the and the test and the treatments required for different types of pandemics. That we're now doing a much better job on coming out of COVID with some of the contracting instruments that are at play and some of the efforts built at, uh, in Europe uh, via the World Health Organization and its partners. And a third core component, and the people give this a lot of different names, is investing in public health infrastructure in places where it's weak. Uh, it's weak in parts of Africa, for example, where you're spending $40 per capita on an annual basis on healthcare. Naturally, you have huge surveillance, diagnostic, and treatment gaps. 
And they happen right in those places where there's the most intersection between zoonotic pressure and population pressures, where, which are likely to generate future pandemics. So investing in global health infrastructure, and then frankly, as we learned in the United States, we have a lot of communities right here at home where we do not have adequate medical and public health infrastructure, and there's a lot of misinformation out there. And we have to do a better job uh, with building that infrastructure here at home. All these panels say the same things. It's about political action after the spotlight of a pandemic has gone away to sustain the investments needed to prevent the next one. And I, I fear that that's not happening uh, to the level we need it to happen across all three of these elements. And it's why the Rockefeller Foundation is committed to continuing to build collaborations to fill that gap. Well, I wonder about, I would just pull the thread a little on that. Certainly the leadership component uh, for a public health uh, agencies is so important. We've had a whole range of people on, Dr. Eric Topol and many others, who really criticized CDC for their lack of really uh, framing up the problem and executing on it. Uh, what's your sense of, uh, ha have they been able to turn the corner or is this still in their rear view mirror and they're not prepared as every expert tells us, it's just not COVID, we're gonna have pandemic after pandemic and we need to yep. be prepared. Uh, I, I would agree with those experts. We are not prepared. I think the CDC made some significant mistakes around COVID, including around testing and, and not collaborating with other countries uh, and relying on a, on a self-created uh, test that turned out to have uh, a basis in a faulty reagent. I think there were other mistakes about, uh, frankly, relying on perfect testing, uh, which is what I call PCR testing, even if it's slow and expensive, as opposed to recognizing kind of fast, quick, even if imperfect or less sensitive data and the role that those tests can play. It took a year to put in place an antigen testing uh, regulatory infrastructure that could scale and be cheap and fast and empowering of our people. So there's a lot more to do in the United States just to be prepared for the next pandemic. And I know the CDC is now making some changes um, I fear they're not prominent enough at this point. So it's important that you and, and I and all of us that have some role to play here stay on task. Because as you point out, especially with climate change, we are going to see more pandemics and we're going to see more infectious disease threats uh, in places where we haven't expected them in quite some time, like malaria in Florida and Texas. And we need to be better prepared. Well, we couldn't agree with you more about the testing uh, comments that you made, especially in those long months between March and December before any vaccine uh, was available. That was essential in the delays in getting results, of course, or the, just the time it took uh, to get the results was very problematic on our way to the rapid tests. Uh, but it's sort of uh, there's testing and then there were the vaccines. And uh, you write about the need to jump first uh, in a situation, and you give an example of the need to change the international vaccine distribution landscape. We'd love to hear more about that. Take us through that story. Sure. Well, this is uh, really at the beginning of the book because I, I learned how to make big bets, you know, at the hands of Bill and Melinda Gates when I had the chance to work with them uh, as they had read a newspaper article that said, look, 600,000 kids every year die of rotavirus, but none of them are in the United States. And, it, and the Merck was getting ready to roll out a rotavirus vaccine back then, but only in the United States, not in the places where the kids were dying. And it led to years of exploration around how can you ensure that every child, there are about 105 million children born every year, every child born anywhere 
has full access to the vaccines that can prevent easily preventable diseases from affecting their childhood and worse yet, ending their life. And, uh, and in order to do that, we had to not only ask simple questions, Bill kept asking, how much does it cost to vaccinate a kid? Because we wanted to study that deeply, but then multiply that by the 104 million kids, 105 million kids, so we knew the total cost. But it also required understanding why there was no adequate manufacturing supply for large-scale, low-cost immunizations. And ultimately, we invented, together with you know, dozens of partners all around the world, I think the world's first big social impact bond, an immunization bond, that allowed European countries to fund a global effort to rethink the vaccine manufacturing space and allowed Gavi, the Global Alliance for Vaccines, to pay back those countries you know, after it had delivered uh, successes. And that immunization bond really did help transform the global market. We built a supply base in, in India and other places that were large scale, low, vol low cost. And it allowed us over time to immunize about 980 million kids and save 16 million child lives. And to me, having sat in communities and talked to mothers and fathers who've lost a child from a simple disease and basically malnutrition, knowing that that effort helped save those lives is I think one of the most profound contributions that's been made in philanthropy and in the broader sense of just helping people and I'm both very proud of it, but it's also an instructive roadmap for how to make big bets in the future. I wanna talk a little bit about being proud of the work that you do in the Rockefeller uh, work that goes on around the globe and maybe talk a little bit about branding. How important do you see branding as part of the overall strategy of the foundation, uh, because uh, while many of us know the name uh, of the foundation, I'm not sure it's known across every community. So talk, talk to us a little bit as a leader, how important it is to have those conversations, but also make sure uh, that those that are reached uh, know the impact that the foundation's made. Well, I appreciate that. You know, I've, I ran USAID as well, the U.S. Agency for International Development under President Obama. And in that setting, you know, branding was exceptionally important right. because uh, part of America's commitment to do the humanitarian work it does is to make sure that communities see and then have a better impression of America, our values, and how we project our capacity to lead around the world. I'd say at Rockefeller, it's a little different. We, we have been around for 110 years. We've thankfully earned two Nobel Prizes, one for the invention of the yellow fever vaccine, another for the Green Revolution, which moved a billion people out of hunger and extreme poverty in the 60s, 70s, and early 80s. And to me, those accomplishments can sort of speak for themselves. We don't actually need to promulgate our brand. What we do need to do is help people understand our values because if you look, even you asked about COVID earlier, we were able to make grants to partners in Cape Town and Stellenbosch, for example, that documented the first Omicron uh, variant of COVID and made the uh, sequencing and data public around that for the world to learn probably four or six weeks before the CDC did the same thing. People have to know that, okay, we're making those investments and we're making them public uh, because it's in the broader interest of humanity to be able to protect itself 
And so they have to know your intention and they have to be able to trust you, especially when you're in the sensitive space of investing in and sharing data. Uh, and so knowing our values is important, but but promoting our brand is probably something we don't really have to do as much uh, as, as I remember but, having but to how, do. When how I would you frame testify. that up for uh, other organizations? I was thinking about you as yeah. giving advice to many of us uh, in the field yeah. and while the Rockefeller, <laughs> you probably don't need uh, to, to push it, <laughs> but what's your advice for people who are down doing that work in the community levels What's oh. the role they have and responsibility they have to really communicate out across uh, the, the uh, schism that existed yeah. in our society? So I, I would say you have an opportunity to over communicate. Yeah. And the reason that's so important, I write about this in the chapter in the book on the Haiti earthquake and its response, is people really do want to be on the side of right and they want to do good in the world. And more importantly, they want to believe that there are people out there with solutions that can solve these problems at scale. And when I led the Haiti earthquake response in 2010, it was the single biggest humanitarian catastrophe the world had seen to that date. 220,000 people perished, uh, unfortunately, mm -hmm. very quickly. Yeah. And so many government buildings had collapsed that there was almost no functional government in Haiti. And the reality was President Obama said, look, just make sure we over communicate what we're doing because the world needs to see it's possible in this tragedy to save lives, to protect women, to feed children. And that year, more American families gave to the Haiti earthquake response directly than watched the Super Bowl. And to me, that's a testament to the fact that people want to do good, but they need to believe it's possible. They need to see hope. And the partners you're speaking of are the ones that allow us all to see hope and be optimists. Yeah. Margaret, we tell people to be shameless propagandists who are uh, doing uh, this type of work. Uh, so important to get that message out uh, uh, to, to the larger community. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Shah, you know we're uh, coming to you today uh, from not too far from Yale University uh, here in Connecticut. And I think many in our audience may not realize that 100 years ago, they're just celebrating their centennial, Rockefeller supported the Yale School of Nursing uh, and becoming the first American school within a university uh, to receive funding to educate nurses uh, in the in the educate to prepare nurses in an educational uh, model, not an apprenticeship model. And of course, there's a storied history uh, that that sprung from there over these uh, past hundred years. And we're also coming from a community health center. I think a little known fact in Dr. Jack Geiger, the late Dr. Geiger's uh, biography, is that it was Rockefeller Foundation support that he went off to Palela in South Africa and studied the model of uh, these community health centers and came back. Uh, and the story is well known from there of the development of community health centers. Is it still possible uh, within Rockefeller to identify what we would call these disruptive innovations or bright ideas and uh, give them the time to uh, come to fruition? Tell us about that. Well, I'm so glad you mentioned both of those examples. It just warms my heart. We're so proud of those elements of our history and we learn from them. You know, and, and John D. Rockefeller, I call the book Big Bets. John D. Rockefeller Sr. called all of this scientific philanthropy. And the idea was find those fresh, innovative solutions that have the ability to lift up humanity at scale. And when you, you know, when you invent the model or study the model and how to replicate the model of community health workers and community health centers, you're actually creating a public health infrastructure that can at scale 
affordably maximize community health. And, and that is such an important achievement. And so, so we're constantly looking for those types of solutions across our work. For example, when we look at chronic disease in the United States, we're actually investing in a major partnership with the American Heart Association and scientists across the country to study food as medicine, because we've seen dietary interventions in certain communities actually consistently lower hemoglobin A1C levels and consistently uh, change the markers of prediabetes and diabetes. Dr. Shaw, thank you for joining us today for uh, congratulations on the new book and for your leadership. Thanks to our audience. Be sure to go online at chcradio.com, sign up for email updates. You can also share your thoughts and comments about this program. Dr. Shaw, again, thank you. Thanks to the staff at the foundation and all the great work that you're doing. Great, thank you. Great to be with you today. Yeah, perfect. Pleasure to talk yeah, with you. Bye-bye. That's bye. great. Bye-bye. Thank you. This copyrighted program is produced by Conversations on Healthcare and cannot be reproduced or retransmitted in whole or in part without the express written consent from Community Health Center, Inc. The views expressed by guests are their own, and they do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Conversations on Healthcare or its affiliated entities.